This is Laura London, and you're listening to Speaking of Jung. Joining us today for episode 47 are the writers of the play The Analyst and the Rabbi, Murray Stein and Henry Abramovich. Dr. Abramovich holds a PhD from Yale University and a diploma in analytical psychology, which is the degree of a Jungian analyst from the Israel Society of Analytical Psychology. He is currently Professor Emeritus in the Department of Medical Education at the Sackler School of Medicine at Tel Aviv. He is founding president and a senior training analyst at the Israel Institute for Jungian Psychology and is the former president of the Israeli Anthropological Association, as well as co-facilitator of the Interfaith Encounter Association. Dr. Abramovich supervises routers in the International Association for Analytical Psychology's developing groups in Poland, Serbia, and Moscow. He is the author of Brothers and Sisters, Myth and Reality, and two forthcoming books, Therapy as Performance Art, and why Odysseus came home as a stranger and other puzzling moments in the life of Buddha, Socrates, Jesus, Abraham, and other great individuals. Murray Stein holds a PhD from Yale University and a diploma in analytical psychology from the C.G. Jung Institute Zurich. He is currently a training and supervising analyst at the International School of Analytical Psychology Zurich. He served as president of the International Association for Analytical Psychology from 2001 to 2004 and president of the International School of Analytical Psychology from 2008 to 2012. Dr. Stein is the author of many books and articles, including Jung's Map of the Soul, In Midlife, and The Bible as Dream. Their play, The Analyst and the Rabbi, was performed on stage at the Foyer St. Anton in Zurich on October 29, 2018, and filmed for DVD release. The screenplay, along with extensive commentary by the writers and actors, is available in book format. The Analyst and the Rabbi will be featured at this year's IAAP Congress, where it will be screened at the Audimax Hall at the University of Vienna on Wednesday, August 28th at 8 o'clock p.m., followed by a panel discussion moderated by Dr. Yehuda Abramovich. This interview is being recorded on Wednesday, August 7th, 2019, through the magic of Skype. Welcome, Dr. Stein, Dr. Abramovich. Hi. 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 This play, The Analyst and the Rabbi, has affected me very deeply, as you could probably hear by the sound of my voice. Um, where should we start? How did this come come about? Well, why don't I start and then Murray will continue. Great. For oh. many years, I wished Murray to come to Israel to give some, some lectures uh, because we had deep respect for him. And I finally convinced him to come. And he said, you know, I don't want to give a lecture. Let's, let's have a conversation in front of an audience. And we did. And Murray was extremely open. Uh, People asked him about how he felt about Jung's uh, anti-Semitism. And he spoke very personally and even cried about hearing something bad about your grandfather. No, your father and so forth. And then the next day, I took him on a trip to the Dead Sea 
And we went up to the amazing site of Masada. And at Masada, as we were walking around, we realized that we had both been at Yale around the same time. Why don't you continue the story? And I, was, I told Murray that when I was an undergraduate, I had been involved in theater. And Murray, why don't you continue from there? Okay. Um, well, Henry and I have known each other for quite a few years, and, but I didn't know this about him, that uh, we both attended Yale University, not exactly in the same years, but not too far apart either. And I had been thinking about this play for uh, um, oh, a period of time, maybe a year or two. And I got interested in, in the conversation that happened between uh, C.G. Jung and Rabbi Leo Beck in 1946, reading some biographies of Jung. And I wondered what that conversation was about. There's almost nothing written about it. There were no minutes taken of their meeting. Uh, so I did a little research on it, and I was beginning to put together some ideas for a play. But I didn't know uh, anything much about Rabbi Beck, and I didn't know how a rabbi would think and speak. I grew up in a Christian family. My father was actually a Christian minister, a kind of a Christian version of the rabbi. Um, and I knew uh, a lot about Jung, and I had an idea of how he would um, carry on in a conversation, but I was puzzled about how to put the words into Rabbi Beck's mouth. And when Henry and I were walking there on Masada, it suddenly hit me, here is my partner. <laughs> here is Rabbi Beck. Here is somebody who would know how a rabbi would speak in a very difficult, fraught situation like this. So I explained to Henry um, what I was thinking about, and I asked him if he would be interested in joining me uh, to uh, write a play about this topic, um, this, this moment in Jung's life. And he jumped on it. He loved the idea from the beginning. And so it just took off. And we worked together very harmoniously and productively back and forth uh, for, I don't know, how long was it, Henry? A couple of years and maybe a hundred revisions by the time we finished with the play. And um, uh, in a sense, uh, Henry is Rabbi Beck's voice and I'm Jung's voice, but it wasn't all that clear either because we challenged each other all along the way. Would Jung have really said this? Would Beck have said that? And so it's really a composite of our uh, combined imaginations. Um, we're sort of like Rogers and Hammerstein, I guess, um, coming together, two people with different abilities and talents. And Henry has a theater experience. I have no theater experience, although I majored in English literature at Yale. Um, but I, I never was involved in theater, but I, I love theater. I love to go to theater. Um, but Henry had the, the background of theater, so he kept challenging. Uh, we've got to make this more dramatic. We've got to make this more, you know, theater. And so uh, he was a, a wonderful um, partner in that sense, um, putting this play together. And it sure is dramatic. And we all know who Jung was. Uh, would you tell us who Rabbi Beck was? Henry? Yes. Rabbi Beck was the leader of German Jewry in the 1920s and 1930s and led the spiritual resistance against the, the Germans and the Nazis. Very unusually, he was a reform rabbi 
but was a leader of all aspects of German Jewry, from the ultra-Orthodox to the secular Jews. He was a very upright and uh, ethical man. He was at one point uh, taken by the Germans to a camp, a very well-known camp, uh, Theresienstadt, which is 40 kilometers north of Prague, and was kept there as a prisoner. And the beginning, he worked as a as a slave laborer. He said, I was a horse. I would, ga- I would move dead bodies and so forth. And when the, the Dutch Jews were coming, he heard the names of the Dutch Jews and he remembered the great uh, depth of Dutch and Jewish cultural life. And he began to create this fantastic cultural activity at Theresienstadt of operas, children operas, cabarets, art shows, and many, many other things. He almost, at the very end of the war, he had this meeting, which is in the play where he meets Eichmann, and Eichmann is shocked that he's alive. And at this Dostoevsky-like moment where he, they were going to shoot him and then the camp was liberated, so forth, he survived the war. And we have texts, which we include in the play, of how he felt um, when he was on the plane leaving uh, uh, Auschwitz by the American pilot who wrote down what he said, you know, to see a meadow and how he felt about that. He, after the war, he was very active in restoring the destroyed uh, communities. And that's why it come to Zurich. And initially, as we have in the play, he definitely did not want to see Jung and resisted seeing them. And we know this. We have historical proof from letters in the Jung archive that Beck initially refused to see Jung. But what was their history, the history between Jung and Rabbi Beck before all of that? I would like to just say a word about that. Rabbi Beck was very well known in his time. He was a very famous figure, similar to Buber. Uh, Martin Buber and, and uh, Rabbi Leo Beck were among you know the, the Jewish um, celebrities, let's say, and in Germany of their day. And um, Jung met Rabbi Beck at the uh, School of Wisdom, uh, Count Hermann von Kaiserling set up a school in Germany called the School of Wisdom, and many <clears throat> famous intellectuals went there and lectured. And uh, <clears throat> that's where Jung met quite a number of people and, and struck up relationships with them. And Rabbi Beck was there in the audience when Jung gave a lecture, I think it was in 1928 or 1930. Uh, and uh, after that lecture, Jung had to rush off. He didn't have time to stay around and talk to people. So Rabbi Beck wrote a letter to Jung, a letter of appreciation saying how valuable he found Jung's uh, writings for his work as a pastor, as a, as, a, um, as a rabbi counseling his flock and so on. Uh, a letter of very warm appreciation to which Jung never responded. But that letter is in the archives, and that's one of the few documents that we have that... Uh, tells us anything at all about their relationship. Uh, They were also connected to each other somewhat indirectly through a woman named Olga Freby Kapitän, who was the founder of the Eranos Conferences. And um, she had contacted Jung in in 1932 to involve him in her uh, vision of uh, setting up these conferences, a dialogue between East and West, the religious traditions of all the of all the peoples, um, 
of the world, basically. And uh, she was also a, an, a made acquaintance or made a friendship with Rabbi Beck. And uh, so uh, Leo Beck was uh, connected to Jung indirectly. And after the war in 1947, both Jung and Beck were at Aranos. This is after their meeting in Zurich that we dramatize in the play. Uh, they were both at the uh, Aranos lecture in 1947. Both gave lectures there, and there's a picture of them sitting together at the round table at Aranos that's uh, we've used on the cover of the book. Yes. So obviously they were in a in a good position to have a conversation and a dialogue at that point. Right. So uh, that's more or less their history. And after uh, that meeting, there were some exchanges between them through Olga Capitan, but I don't think they ever met again after that Aranos meeting. And Jung died in 1961. Beck died when Henry in the early 60s sometime. Yeah, 65, I think he died. Yeah, they were just about the same age, almost yeah, exactly were, the same. And it was like, yeah, but there was one other connection between them. Count Kaiserling, who had founded the School of Wisdom, edited a very fascinating book of marriage. That's right. Yeah. In which many, many interesting uh, people contribute chapters, including Jung and Beck. And it's very telling to see their very different views of what marriage is like. There's one phrase that, that of Beck's that I like. He, he fell in love with his wife and he was this kind of one woman man. But he wrote, love begins in poetry, but is lived out in prose. The marriage, marriage begins in poetry and lives, is lived out in prose, wasn't that it? Yeah, um, that's a great line. Um, Jung's contribution to that book, um, I think it was in the early 20s, wasn't it, 23 or 24? Yeah. Jung's contribution um, made the famous distinction between the container and the contained. Oh, right. Uh, and um, Jung said that one marriage partner is the container and the other is the contained. <clears throat> contained. The more complex personality is the container, the, the less complex is the contained. And um, it, it's been criticized somewhat for that, but that concept of container and contained was picked up by Beyond later and used quite a lot in, um, in Beyond's uh, psychoanalytic writings. And it's not a bad concept. Uh, it's just one can't use it too mechanically, but um, I think most couples have that experience at least in some areas, one is the container and the other contained. In other areas, it might be the other way around. But um, it's um, another point of contact between Beck and Jung. They both were very interested in marriage and uh, relationships, um, had quite different experience of them. Beck being, uh, as Henry said, a, a one-woman man, Jung not so much, maybe, <laughs> according to stories anyway. <laughs> So they knew each other, they respected each other's work, and then the war happened, right? No, I think it was long before the war. Jung wrote a few things in certainly 1933-34, which, how can I put it, could easily be interpreted as anti-Semitic, even uh, supporting a Nazi worldview. And I think at that point, Jung, who had been followed very much by Beck and his and his congregation, uh, was uh, very put off by this and distanced himself from Jung. 
as did many of of Jung's Jewish followers. I mean that that uh, notorious article that Henry is speaking about was published in 1934 when Jung was the president of the International Medical Psychotherapy Association, and put um, his Jewish uh, close Jewish followers uh, in a in a very awkward position, and um, and there there are letters between Jung and um, Erich Neumann, for instance, and Jung and uh, James Kirsch, his closest uh, among his closest Jewish um, disciples, if you want to call that call them that, his students. Very challenging what he said because the tone of that article, which can be interpreted in several ways, played into the anti-Semitic, um, a very strong anti-Semitic atmosphere that was uh, gathering force uh, after Hitler took power in 1933 and um, Jewish doctors could no longer belong to medical associations. Jewish professionals were thrown out of their professional societies in Jung's favor, he did make an arrangement with the International Psychotherapy Association to allow for individual members to be a part of it uh, so that the Jewish, German Jewish analysts could remain members uh, despite the fact that they could not belong to the German association that was a part of that society. It was a, a complex moment, but it really, uh, that was one of the, um, and we put that in the play very strongly, one of the moments that, um, uh, and statements that Jung has most heavily criticized for uh, when he says the, they, um, it speaks about Jewish psychology and he says the Jew uh, is, um, has to live in a host country, he hasn't created a, a culture of his own. And it's sort of, he doesn't use the word parasite, but it plays into that kind of formulation of the Jew as other, similar to what we're experiencing in our time with others coming into other cult, people from other cultures and religions coming into Europe and the United States and migrant issue and the religion issue that's such a hot topic today. That, that was the issue in Germany. Uh, in the 1930s with uh, with the um, uh, German nationalists and Nazis calling out the Jews as others, not not of our people, uh, a different race, all this nonsense, um, mostly out of envy because the Jews were very successful in there. Yes, and I just would like to jump in. If anybody would like to read this, the article is called The State of Psychotherapy Today. It is in volume 10 of Jung's Collected Works, which is titled Civilization in Transition. And there will be links to all of those on the website. Very good. I think it is important to say that it's, it's unclear why Jung became so fascinated by this, whether it was as we, as, as Beck suggests in the play, he was an opportunist, whether he generally was taken over by a kind of collective complex. And nobody, I think, thinks that Jung was personally anti-Semitic. He continued mm -hmm. to have Jewish friends throughout his life. He had warm relationships. As we talk about the play, he had these, these visions, the Kabbalistic visions in chapter 10 of memories, dreams, and reflections. Uh, he was drawn to Jewish things. Many of his most important patients, like Sabina Spielrein, yes. 
Jewish, so he, he was unconsciously drawn to this, but he had a kind of blindness uh, at this time and didn't see the implications of what he was arguing. Uh, he, he, he did apparently make private uh, apologies, apparently, to James Kirsch, but he definitely did not make a public apology. And this is something very alive in the Indian world today because there are calls um, he should, that an apology should be made right. to how to blacks or primitives. There was a successful, ultimately successful call, I think, in your time when you were president, Murray, to the Jung Club for having a, a numerous clauses for the for the percentage of Jews who are allowed to join the Jung Club in Zurich and not just in wartime. I think long afterwards. Um, uh, so it's easily to project the otherness, the shadow onto Jews, and then and then they lose their humanity. One of the things we write about in in our um, exchange uh, after the play that's published in the book, uh, we have a a uh, conversation, Henry and I. And Henry, um, can you say a few words about um, Jung's reputation in Israel when you were training there? Was he looked upon as uh, by by your uh, by your colleagues uh, in in the in the field of psychology and psychotherapy? Uh, as anti-Semitic? Well, I think there were two aspects. The people who, who were the, those who trained me were very much disciples, even the harem of Erich Neumann. And they saw themselves very much as disciples of Neumann and much less so of Jung. But in Israel and also like in Yale and other places, even though Jung gave the famous Terry lectures at Yale, which, which you know, our, our landmarks in, in the field of psychology, I would meet many people who would say, how can you be Jewish and a Jungian analyst? Right. You, and, and I think this was the difference in the way we approached the, the play, which is this was an issue that I had been grappling and struggling with since the beginning of my training. And I think one of the reasons that convinced me to, to train in the end was that on the eve of deciding to train, I think my, my interviews, I had a dream where uh, I, I came up and I knocked at a door and the door opened and Jung invited me into his house. And so I felt I was being accepted. I was in, in a way that I hadn't. That is, being Jewish, one was Freudian. That was, that was the home for the Jewish psychology. That was Gemutlichkeit. That was, you know, regular. So there is, and one still hears uh you know, inaccurate statements. Jung was a Nazi. It's true that he was giving lectures in Berlin even as late as 1938, but he never was a Nazi. He certainly was pro-British during the war, and even he was in the, the, the American Secret Service. How did that rumor start that Jung was a Nazi? Well, we, we mentioned this article from 1934. That was the beginning of it. I don't think before that, maybe... Freud made some comments uh, about, you know, the Freudian circle, the people around Freud in Vienna, I think were all Jews. And when Jung entered that in, in 1907, he went and visited Freud. Um, I think he was the only non-Jewish member of the group at that time. And Freud saw him as a as a way to expand uh, the influence of psychoanalysis outside of, you know, the Jewish mm -hmm. community. And so Jung was like his, uh, his knight, 
uh, carrying the message of psychoanalysis into the larger world of German psychiatry um, because Jung was very well connected uh, to, to that world, to the uh, world of psychiatry through his association with Bloiler in, in Zurich at the Berkholzli Clinic. But when they broke, uh, and, and during the time that they were together, there's a, a letter that Freud wrote to um, Carl Abraham uh, about Jung. And Freud says to Abraham, you know, it's, it's easier for you because we are uh, of the same tribe. I can't remember the exact words he used, but we're both Jews. It's easier for you to accept the, uh, my ideas about the psyche and about psychoanalysis than it is for Jung. It's harder for Jung because he's a Christian. He has a Christian background. Mm-hmm. So do you, are, do you think that it was Freud's camp who was behind this rumor that you, that Jung was a Nazi? Well, um, <laughs> I, I don't know. Jung had some enemies. There yeah. were people in the world who <clears throat> wanted to make Jung look bad and, and were afraid of Jung's influence and didn't like it. So maybe some of them, but some of his enemies were not Jews. I mean, they just didn't like Jung. Right. They thought uh, his psychology was either nonsense or mystical or misleading. Um, and um, so it was a combination of things, but they pinning the Nazi thing on him, um, I think that was, that gathered some steam in the, in the 1930s. And then at the end of the war, there were all kinds of rumors flying around in the United States. There are letters between Jung and uh, Esther Harding, for instance, who lived in New York, and Eleanor Bertin, um, and they are telling him that in the United States, there are rumors going around that you are being investigated by the FBI. There's even a rumor that you're hiding somewhere in the United States. Um, um, I mean, extreme, crazy rumors. Right. right. Uh, and we use that at the beginning of the play. That's really how the play begins. Where that's how the play begins, yeah. I think it was, I mean, we don't know, I mean, you know, but I think it was these essays that he wrote that seemed to that could be read as very supportive of this and also remember this is a time that's leading up to mccarthy so you have like anonymous uh, accusations yeah these are taken then as proof that this person is suspicious or unworthy yeah. uh, it's interesting to contrast um uh, 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 Heidegger, who was, you know, the leading German philosopher, who was a complete Nazi. He was, you know, got rid of Jewish professors, including his own uh, teacher. He never renounced his Nazism. He was the lover of Hannah Arendt, who wrote so nastily about Beck, called him the Jewish Führer, even though she was having this affair before and after and trained him to pass the denazification uh, exams. And somehow he, nobody says hardly any bad things about Heidegger. Heidegger at all the universities, and nobody says this. And the likelihood that his Nazism infiltrated his theory is much more likely that, that Jung's flirtation influenced his theory. Now, what I find interesting, and and please forgive me if I'm off base here, but most people who know about Jung know about his relationship with Sabina Spielrein, who was a huge figure and did some great work, which 
uh, maybe not a lot of people know about. I'm going to put a link to the documentary that was made about her. My name was Sabina Spielrein uh, on the website. Um, but she was eventually murdered by Nazis, she and her two children. And this, I think, affected Jung very deeply. And then so that's a huge figure in Jung's life. And then Freud was a Jew. So when I first discovered Jung, uh, and I learned about Sabina, of course, about Freud, I never thought of Jung as being anti-Semitic. Um, I had heard the rumors, but always brushed them off. So as being as I thought, how could that be that that's not possible. So what he wrote in 1934, could that be because of his, I don't know, those relationships, maybe some kind of hangover from them? Could be. Um, <clears throat> we, um, of course, we, we include that uh, very importantly in the play and also Sabina Spielrein. We put a dream into Jung's uh, psyche, which yes. there's documentary evidence for that, but um, that seemed, you know, plausible, at least, that he would have had such a reaction upon hearing of Sabina's uh, uh, being murdered um, by the um, stormtroopers in uh, Rostov on Don. And um, uh, so his relationship uh, to Jews um, was was long and complex and when he um said those words in 1934 he might have been unconsciously and this is what we put in the play mm -hmm. you know everybody has a shadow uh he might have been unconsciously getting back at freud now the thing is uh when jung talks about jewish psychology in there in that article he's really in my opinion, talking about Freud and Freudian psychology, Freudian psychoanalysis. And um, he's saying that there are, uh, that Freud, Freud's psychology, Freudian psychoanalysis is uh, specifically Jewish and doesn't apply to Aryans necessarily in the same way. Um, and he's making space for himself uh, and for his psychology to take uh, a bigger role in the German professional world. And that's why he was accused of being an opportunist, that he's pushing Freud aside. He's saying Freudian psychoanalysis is for Jews, uh, but my uh, analytical psychology is for the Aryans because I'm one, you know, I'm a German, a Germanic, mm -hmm. long-term Germanic people, and my psychology is more fitting for um, working with uh, patients who are not Jewish. He doesn't say that in so many terms, but it's it's the subtext there. And so that's why he's been accused of being opportunistic, because Germany was the big prize, as we say in the play. Uh, Germany was seen as sort of the pinnacle of um, uh, culture and um, um, sophisticated modern ideas, um, philosophical and psychological, and to have a strong foothold in German culture was a big deal. And um, Jung, uh, Jung uh, benefited in that sense from uh, 
Freud's expulsion. They burned Freud's books yeah. uh, publicly. And uh, uh, the, the um, Freudian psychoanalysts, most of whom were Jewish, uh, could no longer practice uh, as medical doctors and so on. Uh, and, and Jung uh, got a, a privileged position. Well, I agree with you, Murray, but I, I would add another way of looking at this is people, I mean, one of Jung's great contributions is the concept of a complex, which he was really the first to talk about it. And then Freud and, you know, everybody, all psychologists have taken this on. So I might have, a, you know, a mother complex and I want people to look after me and so forth. But more recently, we talk about cultural complexes. So cultural complex, similarly to personal complex, have a certain way to do this. And European society certainly has a anti-Semitic cultural complex, which is a tendency to see the, the Jews as the other, to see them as stigmatized, to see them as carrying a historical burden of guilt, that is, they killed Christ, um, which is something they can never atone for. Uh, whatever they are, they're either too rich or dirty. In any case, they are, or, or they become... As the Nazi said, they become like a cancer on the body, on this, you know, the idea. Therefore, we have to remove them. So I think Jung fell into that cultural complex, which was very available to him. Because as we say in the play, he didn't really, before, you know, he didn't really know Jews. He didn't have friends of Jews. He lived in a very uh, environment where he wouldn't have interactions uh, typically with Jews. It's very interesting to look at the opposite side of the European culture, Studies of, of, uh, during the Holocaust of people who became uh, what we call righteous Gentiles, as people who saved Jews at the risk to their own life and families who are recognized in Jerusalem at Yad Vashem. These are people who very often did, did have contact with Jews. They were their neighbors, they were their partners, they were friends, and therefore they were very, very much humanized. And what's amazing is that when you, you talk to these people who saved who saved these Jews. I mean, it's a, it's a fantastic thing that they did. And you say, well, why did you do it? You know, your whole family could have been exterminated by the Nazis. And they say, I didn't do anything special. Anybody would have done this. You know, it's, it's so not true, but that's the way they see it. And that makes somebody into a kind of a saintly person. Yeah. Yeah, and you say that in the beginning that this is a play. Uh, Dr. Stein, you say this is a play about the shadow and facing up to it. And then, Dr. Abramovich, you say, a great man has a great shadow. And I love that because I think, for me personally, uh, the, I find the most important part of Jungian psychology is the work on the shadow. So I think that this play is a really great example of, of that. And another question um, that the play raises is, Rabbi Beck asks Jung, why did you not speak out even when you knew? So let's get into that now. We know what Jung said and did, but then why didn't he speak out about it after? Because, Dr. Bramovich, you say that part of you is or was this Dr. Beck so angry at Jung, right? That that Dr. Beck didn't want to speak or Rabbi Beck didn't want to speak with him, but the other side knows that the right thing to do is to speak with him and confront him about it. But that's a very good point you made, Laura. Uh, 
that's why we have the woman in the play. Right, we have three right. characters in the play. We have Jung and we have Beck, and then we have a woman that floats between them. She's just mm -hmm. called woman. And she's a figure that speaks for the other side. Um, and uh, when Beck is saying, I just don't want to see him, uh, I don't, uh, I don't want to meet with him, she's saying, but you should, you know, you know, give him a chance, hear him out. That's the other side of Beck speaking. So the woman is speaking for that position, that Beck uh, in his, um, uh, you could say, minority side uh, knows it's the right thing to do uh, on the third knock, answer the door. And he finally does it. And the woman brings them together, makes it possible for them to meet. So she's she speaks for the the chance of um, of um, restoring a relationship and uh, uh, possible reconciliation. And I do I would like to clarify with both of you uh, for this character of woman, which in the credits it's just woman in double quotes, and for all the women out there that are going to take issue with this, I'd like for both of you to clarify why she's not given a name and why she's just sort of, she, she's kind of like the Greek chorus, right? She, she's yeah. the inner presence, the inner voice of both of them. And she's actually played brilliantly by a Jungian analyst, Darianne Pictet. Yes, I think Darian did a marvelous job uh, playing that. Henry and I went back and forth about um, uh, whether even to include her. Uh, we could have written the play without her. Mm -hmm. One reason we, uh, um, I'd say a minor reason we put her in there um, was that at uh, ISAP we have this um, this ensemble, uh, the three, uh, the four of us, uh, who have worked together on a number of performances of Jung's letters and other things, and Darianne has always been a part of it, so we had to find a place for her. Uh, that's one reason. But the other is that um, uh, we, we wanted uh, an anima figure. We could have called her anima, but that's, you know, that's a kind of jargon word, so we mm -hmm. just called her woman. But this is the, um, she represents their, um, she goes between them. She's, she's like a common uh, Eros figure. Uh, she she wants to bring them together. She wants them to tell the truth. She wants them to speak out. They find it very difficult. So in their egos, they are having a hard time. Uh, but there's this other figure that's uh, putting some um, Eros pressure on them, uh, encouraging them, um, sometimes saying their their unspoken thoughts. Um, so. Uh, I, in the end, I felt that it was, she plays an essential role in the whole story of facing the shadow, coming to terms with it, uh, and where do you where do you go once you've done that? That was a big question we had toward the end too. Yeah, I, I say it. I mean, we called her woman because we didn't know what else to call her because she plays about twenty different roles in the play. She plays Jung's wife. She plays Beck's wife. In the Beck's why the died long ago, but as, as though the image, she holds them together, you know, she comments on the scene, she plays uh, a Nazi at Theresienstadt, she plays a woman asking whether she should go with her husband, the exact opposite. Um, 
So she plays these multiple roles. And even though I think she she's there because her presence is so striking, the audience immediately understands who she is, even though she's uh, always changing what she is and who she is. And that, I think, then allows the ending, which we, we really struggled over so much. Uh, yes. uh, Did you? Where it's beautiful. Spirit guide, you know, mm-hmm. of like, where should we go? Where do we go from now? And with a sense of humor, uh, helping, helping a kind of uh, a reconciliation, not only between the men, but also within each man to find, to continue looking for the way. Yeah, so let's talk about that. So how did Jung change after this? And how did how did the two men come out of their meeting at this hotel in 1946? How did they come away from it different? Well, we have a document um, there to, that we uh, include in the appendix of the book. Uh, and that's a letter from Gershom Scholem, the famous... Jewish scholar of um, Jewish mysticism, Kabbalah, and so on, who was a lecturer at Eranos and knew Jung. And, and he wrote to um, Jung's secretary, Aniela Yaffe, who was also Jewish. Uh, Jung was very close to Aniela yes, Yaffe. Right. And um, she testified after the war. She's, she has a book uh, one of the, uh, there's a chapter in one of her books about Jung and anti Semitism, which is very, very powerful. And in that chapter, she quotes this letter that she got from Gershom Sholem. And Gershom Sholem uh, says that he had a conversation with Rabbi Beck in Jerusalem. And Gershom Sholem had been invited to um, give a lecture at Eranos, but he didn't know if he should go because Eranos was tainted with the reputation of being uh, uh, Nazi-oriented or anti-Semitic. Again, unfairly, that's another long story. But he wasn't sure he should go. So he, he knew that Beck had had, had, had a relationship uh, and continued to have a relationship with Olga Frebe Kapitan, the, the organizer and sponsor of the Aranos conferences. So he, um, he uh, talked to um, Beck about whether he should go to Aranos or not. And Beck according to Sholem, said in the conversation several times that in this meeting with Jung in 1946 in Zurich, Jung in that conversation several times said, used the phrase, ich bin ausgerutscht. Ich bin ausgerutscht. Several times he said it, and Beck emphasizes that. And with that in in mind and in hand, uh, Sholem was convinced that it was okay to go and... um, participate at the Aranos conferences, which he did uh, very actively after that. Now, that phrase, Ich bin ausgerutscht, uh, has been um, debated. Uh, what does it mean? What? Uh, how, how convincing is that? And when it's translated, and Henry and I had this conversation early on when we wrote the play, and Henry was surprised when I said, Ich bin ausgerutscht means I slipped off the path. Sometimes it's translated as a kind of flippant, oh, I slipped up. Now, if, if uh, all Jung had said to Beck was, oh, I'm sorry, I slipped up, Beck wouldn't have taken it very seriously. It would be meaningless. So what? Okay, you slipped up. Uh, that wasn't enough. 
What, what he meant by Ich bin ausgerutscht was much more serious than that. And if you translate it, I slipped off the path. And that's what we have Jung say a couple of times toward the end of the play when he sees, when he sees himself through Beck's eyes, when he sees himself the way Beck sees him, then he can see um, behind himself, so to speak. Then he can see his shadow and he can say, I, I slipped off the path. And what he means by that is, um, I really lost my way. Uh, and what Henry says about falling into a cultural complex, I think, is much to the point. We all do that from time to time. Mm-hmm. We feel and say things. We don't really know what we're, what we're doing until afterwards we realize, oh, my goodness, that's much more serious than I thought it was. Uh, and then you see yourself through the eyes of the one who is suffering because of what you're saying. And um, when Jung sees himself in that light, then he can say, Ich bin ausgerutscht. And he says it very seriously in the play. And we have him say it as he's in, within his inner world. He's hearing the Dies Irae from Verdi's Requiem. Um, and again, the woman uh, says the lines. Uh, so she participates in this uh, chanting um, it is the day of judgment. It is the day of wrath. The judge will come. Yeah, and we haven't even spoken about the music in the play, mm-hmm. which is very powerful. It's uh, Barbara Miller on cello. She is also a Jungian analyst. And there's music by Vivaldi and Beethoven and Bach. And it provides, it's almost like another character to me. Yes, music from Theresienstadt, which she researched mm-hmm. and found. Music was actually written in Theresienstadt by oh, the um, by the inmates. Uh, right. They were extremely, um, remarkably gifted, talented people at Theresienstadt. Yes. <laughs> that Murray knew, but I didn't know till very recently, is that Verdi's Requiem was performed seventeen times in the Theresienstadt camp. So oh. it was a, a song that. A, uh, memorial song that spoke very much to them to be able to mourn and deal with their impossible situation that they were going through. Yeah, it's the promise that there will be judgment one day, and they sang it to the Nazis sitting in front of them as though they were they were just singing some nice music, opera music, uh, Verdi's Requiem. But it has this powerful message: you folks sitting out there in the audience. <laughs> Um, there will be a judgment day coming. And there was. There was Nuremberg. Not very far off. So, I think in his, he, he was more able to grapple with the issues of evil in the world and in himself. I think you also see a transformation in the photographs. When he was a young man, you know, the, you have a very famous picture of him. He has these round metal glasses. He seems to me very uptight and, you know, obsessional and things like that. And younger, yeah. Later on, you see he, he relaxes. His face becomes more feminine. He's more at ease. He's more playful. He has a, a positive trickster quality to him. 
And, and uh, in the way that I think memories, dreams, reflection has been so important to many people, not just as a story about Jung, but a story that we can have a story also. We can go up through a process just like Jung went through a process. Right, right. And we include also in the, in the play Jung's famous vision of um, the um, Garden of Pomegranates, the Pardes Rimonim, uh, and the marriage of um, Malkut and Teferet, uh, mm-hmm. it's, Kabbal- it's a Kabbalistic vision. And Jung is identified with the founder of Kabbalah. Um, and so uh, in, in Jung's um, inner process, uh, this was 1944 during the war, uh, there was a tremendous transformation going on in him. And this is revealed in in uh, his conversation with Beck. And one, once Beck sees that, uh, sees that Jung uh, has changed, that he's no longer, you know, the the uh, famous arrogant uh, Jung that maybe wrote those earlier lines, um, <laughs> that he has come to terms with. Um, uh, his shadow and what he had put on the Jews, and not only that, it had deeply connected to the Jewish soul, as we say in the play. Um, he could. Um, we, we don't say he forgives you. He doesn't. There's nothing about forgiveness in this. Henry taught me that about <laughs> the Christian concept of forgiveness doesn't apply. But there was reconciliation and there was resolution to do something. And that's where we bring in tikkun olam. You know, what do you do once you have seen the shadow? Um, of course, you uh, you make an apology and you make a confession and so on, but you have to do something. Mm-hmm. And that's tikkun olam, which is, means to repair, repair the world. And, and um, uh, again, I think Henry's uh, input into the play um, taught me a lot about what that means, what tikkun olam means. Um, I'd heard that phrase before and, you know, took it rather lightly, but it's a very, very serious step in, uh, that follows the recognition of the shadow. And without that step, it's kind of a shallow thing, you know, just making an apology. Yeah, would you say a little bit about that, Dr. Abramovich? Well, the tikkun olam comes from the Kabbalistic view that God filled up the whole world and there was no place to create the world. And therefore, God had to reduce himself to create space in which the world would be created. In the process of creation, through the, the, the different levels, certain parts of the light escaped and went into the um, fragments outside of creation, into the dark shards. And in order to complete the world, to repair the world, one has to go into, as it were, the dark side to find these shards, these broken parts of the world, and redeem the light and restore them to the world. So that's the conceptual idea of tikkun olam. But it's not something very abstract. Uh, uh, Dr. Stein and I were talking about this this very uh, practical case of this drunken driver who had killed the son of a rabbi. And he then felt he went to the rabbi and asked for forgiveness. And the rabbi said, I will forgive you, but you have to start repairing the world. Mm -hmm. You have to promise me that you will drink no alcohol, 
that you will be an advocate in every school in our county to against reckless driving, that you have to go and actively prevent accidents, that you have to do all of those things. And if you do all of those things as part of repairing the world, then I might forgive you. And yeah, that's the important step. You see, I mean, it's um, like Jesus saying to the rich young ruler, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and then you can follow me. Mm -hmm. And he walked away. <laughs> he wouldn't do it. So these these are the hard steps, you know, and uh, and that's what we want to conclude the play with, that uh, going into the future, maybe we'll write a, a sequel to the play, Henry, sometime, uh, and reflect on that. But uh, how did uh, how did Jung go about doing that after his meeting with Rabbi Beck? We could imagine some some of the actions that he took. For instance, uh, this you know this quota that was put on uh, in the psychology club uh, in Zurich, quota on Jews. I think it was instituted in 1944, um, and um, when Jung found out about it, he probably knew about it at the beginning. But when he found out about it, when uh, uh, a Jewish friend of his wanted to join the club, um, uh, he insisted that they take it off the books, uh, or he would leave the club. Um, and of course, he was the club, so that he couldn't very well refuse him. But uh, so they took it off the books immediately. But actions—that's uh, a small one—but actions like that go into this idea of tikkun olam. That you you don't just uh, make an apology and do nothing further. You take action. Right. And so Jung was transformed uh, by this meeting, and I think it's a great example of how we need others uh, as mirrors to see ourselves. And quite, exactly. quite possibly yes. Jung would not have seen himself had he not had this meeting with Rabbi Beck. And so I think that's very important. And also in, in conclusion, I'd like to ask you how this can be, be applied today to our current situation. Can it? Well, let me start. Uh, uh, I, I think if it could be applied today, it means that when you see an example of injustice or intolerance, you have to immediately or as soon as possible confront the person in a very soulful way, not a judgmental way, but try to get them to face up to the responsibility of what they're doing rather than just to say, oh, you know, what's the point or so forth. Uh, you've had some terrible incidents in, in the States this past week, um, these shootings. Uh, perhaps, I'm not saying it would have stopped them, but if somebody had, like, called them on these these uh, uh, racist or intolerant views, maybe it would have happened. Maybe they would have had some moment of self-reflection. I mean, it could be that I'm fooling myself, but you can never lose anything by saying, you know, reflect on what you're doing. Why do you think it bothers me what you did? So, but, you know, Henry, even if it wouldn't have any effect, it's still important to do it. Now, Henry has been very involved in the uh, yeah. dialogue between Palestinians and uh, and Israelis in his uh, part of the world. Henry lives in Jerusalem. He and his wife are, are very involved in uh, attempts at dialogue and, and working with the other in, uh, in his context. So... Um, uh, 
you know, even if it doesn't change the world and, and uh, the bad guys keep getting elected over and over again, it's still important to do that. Yeah. Before I wrap this up, is there anything else that either one of you would like to mention? I would like to say a word about the music. Uh, Barbara Miller worked very hard on making uh, uh, precise selections of musical pieces that uh, she plays on the cello. She's a professional musician. Mm-hmm. She was um, for years in a in a professional orchestra in Holland. She's now a Jungian analyst and still plays the cello beautifully. Um, and um, she made the selection and she played those pieces and she does it very soulfully. And if you see it on the film, you will catch that. Just reading the book, you right. you might not um, catch that uh, the flavor of it so much unless you know the pieces. And as I said before, she did research into the music that was composed at Theresienstadt and wove that in. So that's, uh, um, as you said, um, Laura, uh, like a fourth character. Yes. And the, mu- the musical element is very important. Let me just add how deeply satisfying it was working with Murray as a partner and now as a brother. Uh, <laughs> And how we agreed from the beginning that we would be uh, honest with each other and not be hurt. Uh, you know, we'd be speaking for the benefit of the work, the way we work as analysts to continue the work together. And it was it was uh, it was amazing. It was. Uh, I would uh, absolutely second that. And uh, I, I don't have a brother myself. Um, I, I don't even know that I, I missed one, but I've had partnerships with uh, quite a few people in doing work and never a better one than with Henry. And I feel too like you're a brother to me, Henry, and that we've worked together in honesty and with respect. And um, I really appreciate the differences between us and the similarities. Uh, I think it worked out extremely well. Again, The Analyst and the Rabbi is available on DVD from Chiron Publications. Uh, There will be a link to that on the website, and it's also available in book form in hardcover, paperback, and Kindle. Please visit the website, Speaking of Jung, that's J-U-N-G dot com for more information on everything that was discussed here today. There you will also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to stream or to download for free. This podcast is also available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and now on iHeartRadio. With special thanks to Chiron Publications, this is Laura London, and you've been listening to Speaking of Jung. Speaking of Jung.